Hey everyone, what's up? My name is River and you're listening to SCU Buzz Podcasts. Today I'll be chatting with Dean of Law and former magistrate David Helpern. David completed his Master of Laws at Southern Cross University and co-founded the Southern Cross Law School in 1992. As a magistrate, he presided over the criminal, mining, family, industrial, coronial and children's jurisdictions of the New South Wales local court. His research is focused on judicial education, drug law reform, the overrepresentation of Aboriginal and First Nations peoples in the criminal justice system and environmental activism. We also have Southern Cross third year Bachelor of Law student Amy Mozzarella here. Amy is about to embark on her honours. Today we will be discussing the concept of sovereign citizens, a debate gaining momentum across the globe. Videos of people refusing direction from police officers because they claim the laws do not apply to them have gone viral. We'll be chatting about what the sovereign citizen movement is, what legal rights these people have, and what risks the movement could pose. Welcome to the podcast, David and Amy. It's great to have you join us. Thanks very much. So I guess we'll start off with just a basic question about you both. I will start with Amy, if that's okay. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you developed your interest in law. So I guess my interest in law would have developed mainly from school. I chose to take up legal studies in my final years of high school, which was definitely of interest to me. I'm sort of the person that's always very much like to be in control. I like the black and white and the right and wrong of things, which is interesting now that I've now in my third year of study, I've realized how very much gray the law is and how much in between the lines there actually is. But yeah, I've really enjoyed my studies. I think it's something I definitely can continue to learn. It excites me that there's something that you can always grow and learn more. I think, yeah, that we're always learning and especially with the law as it changes, particularly whilst I'm studying my degree, which is really interesting, yeah. Mm. And David? Uh, My father's a lawyer and one of my favourite uncles is a lawyer, so I grew up in quite a a legal family. Uh, There was always lawyers around and Aboriginal Legal Service and Redfern Legal Centre, a lot of involvement with that sort of law, but I actually wanted to be a vet. In those days, whatever you got for your HSC mark determined what you could get into, and I missed out on vet science by a mark or two, and so law was my my second prize. I still, you know, longingly look at cows and horses in the paddock and think what could have been if I I just got a couple more marks. But I quickly began to really love the law. I think it's inherently interesting. It's like a soap opera every day, reading cases and and legal practice and theory uh, with drugs and violence and and tension and stresses of human existence built in. So for me, I've always been really enthusiastic about law, which meant that uh, practicing law and administering law and teaching law have always been interesting and exciting for me. Mm. And may I just say thank goodness you didn't get those marks to have you be able to sit with us here today and talk to us about law. Although I'm sure that a a discussion with you about veterinary science would have also been very fascinating, but uh, (laughs) thank goodness as well. I guess we'll, we'll throw this one to David first. Would you be able to explain to us what the sovereign citizen movement is? Sure. Well, I have to say that when I practiced law, I'd never come into any contact with it. 
But once I st started on the bench as a magistrate, particularly sitting in rural areas, uh, people would start popping up and uh, mounting arguments that, look, some people would use the term sovereign citizen, others pseudo-law, but started mounting these arguments that just seemed so completely out there that I'd never encountered before. And it was a worldwide phenomenon. So since that time and since dealing with people in court who, who started raising these, these issues... I started researching and teaching it as a magistrate in terms of how magistrates and courts can deal with it. That's a long way around to answer your question, but the reason I'm answering is because it is not an homogenous set of views. It's not as though you can say, this is what a sovereign citizen is, and, there's a, and these are their beliefs, because uh, for two reasons. Firstly, because it's very much a cherry-picking exercise by its adherents. They pick bits of the movement, if you like, or the law, the legal application, and, and apply them. And there's also a spectrum. There's some people who are so far down the rabbit hole of pseudo-law sovereign citizenship that they live, breathe, and eat it. I mean, you can see these people on podcasts who, who and on pay-for-type services on the net that are so far into it. And then there are people who just are really questioning the law and questioning the application, for example, of the Magna Carta or something along those lines. So it's really not easy to answer the question, what do sovereign citizens believe? Because it's not a coherent movement. Having said that, there are some core beliefs worldwide that uh, sovereign citizen adherents have in common. And if we just take the, the average rather than the extreme ends or, or the soft end or the hard end that I talked about before, then there are some themes that come through. The first of those is that they believe that you cannot have a law, particularly a criminal law, unless you've got a victim or an injury. So they believe, and they base this on, on some old common law doctrines that we can talk about, but the, the first and fundamental belief is that unless there's a victim, no criminal law is valid. And they apply that to things like speeding and car registration and at a higher end to things like uh, drug laws, but also a, a whole range of things that they firmly believe that any law that doesn't have a victim is invalid and has no jurisdiction. The second most common belief or the second key belief is what is really huge in America, perhaps a little less so here, but that's the straw man theory or the free man delusion. And that is that there's essentially a legal person and a non-legal person. And I know this sounds a little bit strange to some, some people, but because your birth certificate is recorded in capital letters, um, a very common belief in the sovereign citizen movement is that there is a legal personage that is defined by capitalising the name and there is a non-legal person that the laws don't apply to if you don't capitalise your name. And this is called the straw man theory or the free man delusion, uh, but that a legal person and an individual person are separate. So just looking at those two for a moment, and they're pretty interesting, they do have roots in some legal theory. For example, in civil law, that's where people are suing each other. You can't sue someone unless there's a loss or injury or damage. If you think about, say, defamation or personal injury, if there's no personal injury or there's no damage to your reputation, you can't sue. 
So that's where they get this theory that criminal laws can't apply if there's no victim. Similarly, with straw man or the free man delusion, there is legal theory. For example, companies are separate legal entities to individuals so that a company can sue and be sued. So there's some sort of root basis for the straw man belief. There's a few others as well. They are that everything is a contract. And unless somebody uh, specifically contracts with you, you can't be bound by the laws. These are interrelated, as you can imagine, uh, but separate from the first two that I mentioned is this belief that you can opt out of, by way of contract law, from laws applying to you. So if you don't want to pay tax, you sign these documents and you just opt out of what sovereign citizens see as a contract with you, with between you and the state. And you can just opt out of that, just like... And again, there's a basis for that in the sense that contract law says that it has to be consent between parties, it has to be agreement, and either party cannot enter into that contract, or if it's what's called a unilateral, a one-way contract, you can opt out of it. But of course, that doesn't apply to laws, as we'll see, but that's another of their fundamental beliefs. So those three beliefs intermingle into the fundamentals of the sovereign citizen pseudo-law movement. Mm. I'm going to come back to you, David, because I have a couple of questions I want to ask you to build off of what you've just said. Sure. I'm going to throw this question also to Amy. As David said earlier, he hadn't come across the sovereign citizens movement whilst he was studying law. Has this been something that you've come up in your studies? And if it's not, how did you come across it? And what are your thoughts or your take on the sovereign citizen movement? Well, I suppose like from a from a studying perspective, we we don't obviously study this specifically in any kind of subject like that. But I think that it applies obviously more generally within society. I mean, it's very well recognized within social media and through media. I think that it's interesting as it's happening through and during my degree to be able to apply it to the theory that we learn in our study. To me personally, the first thing that sort of comes to my mind is the rule of law and saying that everyone is equal before the law, yet it seems that some people seem to think that they're above the law, that the law doesn't apply to them, that it doesn't apply to them equally, which is just against a fundamental principle of of the law. And so to me, that just seems, yeah, it just seems strange. It just seems like that is, yeah, just takes the weight from their argument, I think. I think it, yeah, it just lessens what their what their argument is. Mm. Yeah. So, so this question, I guess, is for both of you, just also building off of what you said, Amy, and, and going back to you, David, when you talked about one of those theories within the sovereign citizenship of the contractual agreement that we have with the law and that unless you have signed a contract, then you're not bound by the law. Would you be able to elaborate on that, I guess, from the perspective of Although we haven't necessarily physically written a contract binding us to these laws, why we do follow them and why they are important and at the same time why law reform is also important. Sure. I I think I can start by saying that in the end law is a social construct. It doesn't actually exist even though it has its roots, for example, in biblical views and in faith and the like. It doesn't actually exist as as a thing. It, it is a social construct whereby 
at its very base, all of us humans have got together and we've sort of accepted and decided that we're going to be bound by a set of common laws. And of course, once that happens, it gets force. If you don't follow the laws, you can be locked up. If you don't pay your bills, you can be sued and bankrupted and have your house taken from you. So we sort of have have entered into a social bargain at its very base, which is, as a society, we agree to be bound by the rules. But individuals haven't entered into that. We're born into it, if you like. And so there is a really fundamental thing here that, as, as Amy says, part of the rule of law is that we're all equal before the law and we're all bound by the law equally. So when... People just say, I'm not going to be involved in this or I'm not going to to do this because I haven't contracted. They're making a fundamental mistake. None of us have actually contracted to come into the law. I, I didn't sign a contract to say, okay, I, I agree to be bound by the laws of this of this country. Uh, none of us take, you know, like when I became a magistrate, we take an oath which says I agree to uphold the laws and usages of the, of the state of New South Wales without fear or favour, affection or ill will. We pledge to uphold the laws. But the truth is nobody in society does that, but we are still bound by it. And you can't contract out of a legal obligation that's set by statute. If the If a statute says you have to have car registration, you can't sign a document, which I saw so many times in court, saying, I hereby no longer agree to be bound by the rules relating to car registration, therefore you can't find me, you can't take away my licence, and I'm right to do what I like. There's two reasons why you can't do that. Number one, because the law doesn't recognise it. I mean, it's just a fiction. You're still going to get fined. You're still going to have your licence taken from you. But there's another more fundamental reason, and that is this. If we could pick and choose the laws that were going to apply to us then the whole system would break down. I don't want it to sort of be like a, a, a floodgate, this is the end of the world as we know it. But you can imagine that if people could opt out of, well, I think it's okay to assault my partner, or I think it's okay to discriminate against people because of their colour, or I think it's fine for me to drive at the speed limit, I think safe, or the alcohol level I think is safe, then if people could just opt out, well... We, we all would when it suited us, and society genuinely would, the, crim, the criminal law, the civil law, the entire legal system, and therefore the economic system, the health system, the education system, would literally break down. So when sovereign citizens are challenging something on a contractual basis, you can see why the law has not ever accepted that argument anywhere in the world. Because to accept it would be fundamentally threatening the very basis of not just our society, but but on a on a worldwide level, the application of law. Mm. Amy, do you have anything you'd like to say on that as well? Oh, I would definitely say I agree with David. It's it has the potential if you enable it to gain enough momentum to ultimately create anarchy you can't have people deciding what does and doesn't apply to them obviously they're going to do what they want and not do what they want at the same time I think it's also important a lot of the stuff that you see particularly in the media there's a different way to approach 
sort of an issue like this, if this is something that you strongly believe, there's definitely, I think, a respectful way to approach it rather than a very aggressive and some quite often violent ways to approach it, especially you know, with police and law enforcement, I think that there's definitely, yeah, a respectful way rather than a, a violent approach to be taken in this, yeah. Mm. I think that's a really a really good point. You know, and the law is capable of change. It's actually capable of saying, we got something really wrong, we're going to go back in history. And the, the best example of that is terra nullius. For 200 years, Australian law said this was an empty country, despite the anthropological, the historical, the social... The, the blaringly obvious evidence that it was not an empty country. So that myth gave rights to, gave, gave birth to a, a movement whereby First Nations people didn't have any land rights uh, unless those that were given to them by, by gift. But in Mabo's case, the High Court said, no, we've actually got this wrong. The evidence is quite clear that it wasn't terra nullius. Therefore, First Nations people do have land rights. So there is exa- there is a respectful way of, and an appropriate way and a valuable way of challenging the law and saying, hey, these laws are wrong. This is how the law should be. And law can change to meet those requirements. And it's not anarchy. It's a, it's a staged, appropriate response to a new way of looking at the law. Mm, mm. I agree with both of you there on, on what you've said and as well with, you know, there is definitely a way to enforce law and that is without violence. And also speaking of law too, you know, like law has been around forever. There's First Nations law, Indigenous law, there's law in every land that we live upon. That's that's how we live on this land and how we coexist. Would you both also be able to explain to us why law is important? and why we have had law since the beginning of, of human civilization. Yeah, of course, we haven't had one unified legal system for that long. And although there was LAW and LORE in First Nations societies, uh, they were disparate, they were unwritten, and they were, from a Western perspective, they were hard to understand and hard to follow. But that is the basis of how all of our law developed through tradition, through through learning, through generation, through oral tradition before there was reading and writing. But I, I really think you're spot on. A society without law or where people could opt out of law at their whim, I guess in... in in generations past, people could leave one country and go to another or leave civilization in inverted commas and, and go bush and enter into a much less restricted society. But those options are increasingly dwindling. But without law, well, what is the alternative? Uh, I think we, we can see what happens in countries where the legal system completely breaks down. And that is that oppressed groups tend to be more oppressed, violence increases, and anarchy reigns. Uh, There's a lot more poverty, both uh, economic and educational, and things like medical systems and education systems really break down severely. And I I suppose that's the, the real challenge for people who follow sovereign citizenship is, well, what is your alternative? What's your model? 
what does it look like when everything's a contract, you can opt out of it, there's two people, one legal, one not, and the non-legal one can do whatever they like, when the only laws that apply apply if, if there's an injured party, otherwise it's a free-for-all. Well, really? Like, what does that world look like for us and for our loved ones? Uh, it doesn't look really great to me. And we've seen the extreme examples of that. We've seen what happens when that gets taken to its extreme, and that is when police enter your premises, you feel free to kill them. Um, and that's what happened in, in Western Queensland just before Christmas. So that's my challenge to those who follow sovereign citizenship. Well, what does your no-law society really look like? Mm-hmm. Amy, do you have anything you would like to say as well? Yeah, I would say that I definitely agree. I mean, you can say that a society with perhaps laws that are more that are more free and give people more rights is all sunshine and rainbows, but I mean, that's working under the assumption that people always do the right thing, that people have access to rights, that people can have their responsibilities and that they fulfill their responsibilities. But I think that we're in a, unfortunately, in a society where that just that just is not a reality. We need some construct to create, to set responsibilities, to create obligations, to ensure that people have their rights, that they can express them and that it's done in a a civilised and a respectful manner. I think it's important for that to happen. Mm, I agree. And so then as well, to loop it back to sovereign citizenship, what are the most common crimes that the sovereign citizenship movement is used for? Look, historically, um, if you look at the American and the Australian examples of it, your listeners can Google something called Hutt River Province, which occurred in Western Australia in the 60s and 70s, where a family basically decided they didn't want to pay land tax and income tax, um, and therefore they were creating their own country called Hutt River Province and had a prince and currency and all the rest of it. In America, the basis of the movement, apart from its its home in anti-Semitism and racism, also was very strongly anti-tax. So the anti-tax and anti-having-to-pay-tax movement is, is where a lot of this started. In the local court where I saw it, by far the majority of cases were traffic cases. And that's because of there is a bunch of people making money out of the sovereign citizen movement. They are people who are selling kits on how to get out of speeding fines, how to get out of car rego online, and you pay your few hundred dollars or you subscribe to their ongoing lectures and things on how to, to get out of these things. And people buy these kits and then apply them in the court. And it's so regular and the language is so clear. I got to the point where I could say, ah, so you got this from X website, didn't you? And they'd go, well, yes. So traffic matters are by far the most common. Now, that also is probably because traffic matters are the most common crime. I mean, I know that it's not not murder or manslaughter, and it's hardly studied at uni as well, but the truth is most people's interaction with the criminal law is through traffic, it's through speeding, it's through forgetting to register your car or, or not putting your indicator on. So that's where it finds, and you've seen on the, the YouTubes that you mentioned earlier of, of interactions with police, almost all of them are about traffic matters. And that's where it has its most interaction with the criminal law, the sovereign citizen movement, and particularly because there is a myth that is sold which is connected to the whole contract, no harm business, which is 
if you are not a commercial traveller, then you are not bound by the road rules. Now, I know this sound, people may well roll their eyes at this, but I can tell you this is argued every day in the local courts around Australia, that there is a distinction between travellers travelling for personal or social reasons and those travelling for commercial reasons. And if it's not for commercial reasons, the law does, simply doesn't apply. And they and you can hear them on the YouTubes going, I, I, I'm not a driver, I'm a traveller. And again, this has some roots way back in the era of, of gypsies and travellers and the like, that there were different road rules that applied, but it hasn't applied in Australia since since Federation, um, and it doesn't apply uh, whatsoever, except in very, very few examples. Just one that, that a lot of people harp on is that if you are a person who is in a business like, like uh, if I said, a milk deliverer back in the 1960s, then you don't have to wear a seatbelt, for example, because you're jumping in and out of your car all the time. And there's a couple of exceptions. Similarly, if you're throwing a person who throws newspapers out the window for a living, then you can drive with a sliding door open. You know, there's a few minor things like that. So the most interaction is in traffic matters. And they have, you know, we may think minor, but they have serious consequences because once you challenge something in court and if you lose, your licence can be disqualified. If you then drive well, you're disqualified. It's a, a an offence that carries a jail term. And I saw many people, in fact, I jailed many people for what started out as minor traffic matters but ended up being long-term jail sentences because they adhered to the belief that these laws did not apply to them. Hmm. Amy, what are your thoughts? Well, listening to what you've just said, that's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, if they would have, uh, if they would have just shut their mouth, they might have just got a couple hundred dollar fine. But to argue their point so so like strongly, and it just shows the depth that this argument really has taken a hold of people. I mean, to put them in jail for a, a minor traffic offence. I mean, had they just listened and done what they were told and nodded their head at you in the court they could have avoided that whole situation but yeah I guess it's obviously it's it's very strong potentially within certain groups within society I mean it's just taken a very strong stance to it yeah and and so why are these traffic rules and laws why are they important well, uh, look, until very... Uh, I mean, the biggest cause of death for 18 to 40-year-olds now is suicide. But that has only recently caught up with uh, road trauma. So it is still a major cause of death and injury in our society. There's several reasons why that's lessened in the big scheme of things. Uh, but if you look at it gen genuinely, it's to do with regulation. Countries that have unregulated traffic laws have higher death rates. And of course, I'm only talking about death. There's also the whole thing about road trauma as well, uh, you know, people with chronic and ongoing injuries. So, for example, probably the biggest determinant of road deaths and trauma now to uh, the way vehicles are built now and the speed limits that people drive at. So this is not a genuinely uh, a victimless area. There are people who die as a result of these things. Now, because cars have got a lot more safe and we're generally driving a lot more slowly, then this is having a real impact on road trauma. So some people see it as deeply offensive that they have to put a seatbelt on. It's true that there's no victim apart from yourself and perhaps society generally if you go through the windscreen and you're, you're either dead or a mess as a result. 
But as a society, we've decided that this is something that that we need to have laws to protect people from their own self, and you have to put the seatbelt on, and it saves lives and reduces road trauma. So while road rules are, you know, look, there's some road rules that are just silly and shouldn't be there. Uh, I used to deal with people occasionally who would leave their keys in the car when they went in and paid their fuel at the service station and would come out to a ticket. I mean, who knew? Who knew that if you leave, left your windows wound down, it's an offence for which you can receive a ticket? You know, so there are some some silly road laws around and they need to be changed and we can lobby and exercise our rights. Unfortunately, the police very rarely charge anyone with these silly laws because they've got in their back of the mind road safety as well. So short answer is we need road rules and we can't have people contracting out of them because they don't like them or they don't want to comply with them or, or we will have increased road trauma and deaths. Mm. Amy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all good and well to say that, you know, going five or ten kilometres over the speed limit or even drinking that one extra drink or something is something that's not super important and, oh, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't affect other people, but you do sort of have to take into account that it potentially has major consequences for other people. It doesn't take much for, as you said, a you know, major traumatic car accident possibly causing death. Then it becomes from just you speeding to you've actually killed someone I mean it's it's might be a minor thing to begin with but it has major consequences so I feel like it's important to start sort of at the roots by saying that yeah that's a very important thing that has to be yeah we need we need traffic offences and for them to be regulated and enforced yeah Mm. and I guess as well to speak on that sovereign citizen theory of if if it's a victimless less crime then it's not a crime but you know it's a thank goodness moment that it wasn't a victimless crime because predominantly that's that's what happens and so with with the importance of these traffic regulations to keep each other safe and also to keep our working professionals and paramedics and police officers out of road trauma from from being a first responder to those sites when you made your decision to sentence the people who decided to bring up these issues in court under the sovereign citizenship movement, did those reasons or those potentials for what could have happened informed your decision to sentence those people? Sure. There's a few things there and it's it's really interesting area and worth unpacking. If you get a ticket, one thing that a lot of people don't realise, if you get a ticket, say, for $200 and you pay it, that's the end of it. You may have some points, etc. But if you decide to go to court, if you elect to go to court, the original amount of the ticket is irrelevant and the court works to the maximum penalty, which is, for example, with speeding matters, several thousands of dollars fine. Not only that, the court has an inherent power to disqualify people if they decide to come to court. So the decision made to challenge these by people with with these views puts them in the sights for a much greater penalty. In determining penalty, there's a range of things that the court considers. One of them is if it's a plea of guilty, if there's remorse, if the person's done some education, if they've realised they're a speed freak and they need to stop using, stop their lead foot, if they've done a traffic offender program and seen the kinds of impact that drink driving can have, all of those lessen the penalty. But if you come to court completely remorseless, not acknowledging that the court has any power over you, effectively saying, well, 
I don't really care what you do. I'm going to keep driving and driving how I like because I don't believe these laws apply to me. Then the penalty regime is going to increase. And that's not a matter of saying, well, you're thumbing your nose at the court, therefore I'm going to slam you. It's a matter of saying, well, on general sentencing principles with things like deterrence, rehabilitation, reduction of crime, remorse, all of those things as part of the instinctive synthesis of setting a penalty, then those people's penalty is going to be way higher than someone who just pays the fine or who comes to court and seeks mercy because they've acknowledged what they've done is wrong. I have never had a problem with people confronting laws arguing that they were wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't increase a sentence. But, you know, for example, people who come to court with a drug possession charge and say, these laws are stupid. You know, this is my medicine. Okay, fair point. Um, That doesn't increase your penalty. Same with traffic laws. If you want to argue against them saying they shouldn't be speeding on this corner because it's a dead straight road and it's no problem. But once you start saying the law doesn't apply to me, I'll do what I like. I'm going to keep speeding. You've got no rights over me. The penalty regime increases. So sentencing people who come to court and argue this is inherently going to be a much more severe punishment than others. And most of these people who were coming to court were repeat offenders. Uh, they keep coming back and back because the police number plate recognition system is is really high-tech now. They can drive along and it sets off an alarm just by virtue of the car and they go, you know, that car has been involved in ABCD, springs up on their computer and around they turn and on go the sirens and here we are again. So for all sorts of reasons, these people are regularly in court and build up quite a criminal record for this kind of offending. So... This question is for both of you. Why has this movement gained so much popularity, the sovereign citizenship movement? What do you think, Amy? Is it big in your in your age group? I have to say it's probably it's probably not like from a personal experience. I haven't experienced it that much. I would say that a lot of it is generated and, and motivated through social media. I mean, people see something on social media and they just think wow, what a, what a fantastic idea. I might just take that up. They might not. And even just hearing you discuss sort of the, the underlying principles of it, I would say that a lot of people who may have made an argument on the basis of the sovereign citizen movement would have absolutely no idea what principles they're even arguing on a basis for. Like they really just think it's something that's cool. It's something that's trendy. I can be different and yeah, so that's what I'm going to do. I really don't think that a lot of people would even have as much of a sort of theoretical understanding of the underpinnings and the history of it as mm. as you've said. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I sort of I have several theories about the growth of it. One is that people sort of think, I don't want to pay my rego. I want to be able to speed when I want. Um, I don't want to have to pay tax. And I don't like the power of the state over me. Therefore, I'm going to go looking for theories that help me fulfill my innate anarchism, which we all have, you know, none of us like being told what to do. And so that's one theory. The other theory is I think that that COVID and the whole mandates and masks and things really pushed this movement along. And, and we saw that incidentally. I mean, the coronial inquest is still ongoing, but already we've seen that with the uh, Western Queensland shooters. They were anti-vax. They left their work because of COVID, uh, for not wanting to comply with mask and vaccination mandates. Uh, they then isolated themselves and got into the whole sovereign citizen thing. And I think part of it has been an extraordinary 
increase in the power of the state. I mean, in my lifetime, we've never had lockdowns. Mm. We've never had uh, restrictions on movement. We've never had mask mandates and we've never had vaccination mandates in terms of employment and the like. I suppose we have in some industries, but, but you know, like health and you have to have a flu needle and stuff. But very limited in comparison. So the power of the state over COVID really increased its its fingers into people's lives, for good or for bad. But that, I think, has triggered a reaction for many people. I don't like this. I don't like the power of the state. You know, I, I want to continue to be able to use cash. All of these restrictions... And many people investigated sovereign citizen movement in a way that they wouldn't have ever done before. And some pretty savvy operators in that movement who make a living out of it really played on that, uh, in social, through, mainly through social media, but also through mainstream media. I mean, we had anti-vaccination candidates standing in seats in Parliament. And in fact, just as the state election is, is coming on now, we have one in Ballina. I was reading his material this morning. And, you know, that's a really new phenomena, at least in my experience. So I think it the whole COVID episode really spurred on the growth of sovereign citizenship. And that, uh, to me, uh, hopefully means that as COVID fades into our memory, then this movement will lessen because I don't see it as a force for good. Is there any intersections between sovereign citizenship and First Nations people? It's a good question and it's part of the spectrum we haven't dealt with in the discussion so far and uh, separate from the sort of right-wing libertarian push that we've been talking about is uh, a recognition of sovereignty for First Nations people. So 30-something years ago, I acted for a man by the name of Dennis Walker. He uh, was the son of Ujuru Nunakal, otherwise known as Kath Walker, a poet on South Stradbroke Island, and he committed a crime in Nimbin. And he argued post-Mabo that the criminal laws did not apply to Aboriginal people because of sovereignty. I was uh, proud to make that argument, and the case went all the way to the High Court, and we lost at every single step of the way. And the High Court found that, indeed, the criminal laws did apply, that sovereignty was ceded in the sense of criminal laws applying equally to First Nations people throughout Australia. And that is the leading case on that, called, obviously, Walker uh, versus uh, versus the State of New South Wales. That has recently been re-litigated in the Northern Territory, where a First Nations person is arguing that the Territory criminal laws don't apply. A magistrate, based on the decision in Walker case, threw out uh, that argument and said it didn't apply. He appealed to the Supreme Court of the ACT, sorry, of the Northern Territory, saying uh, that it did apply, that the, that the previous decision was wrong, a la Mabo, which we discussed earlier. And the Supreme Court said, well, actually, the case hasn't finished in the local court, so we can't decide it. But if we were going to decide it, we would be bound to by the High Court decision. So I have no doubt it's going to be relitigated. But the the legal issue is perhaps less important than the socio-political issue, which is that First Nations people are fully within their rights to argue sovereignty and to claim that sovereignty has never been ceded and that therefore the laws don't apply to them in the absence of a treaty. 
and that that is an argument that has a lot of historic academic support but very little legal academic support because the consequences are so gobsmacking i mean if that argument gets up well then there has to be a treaty but what if there's not a treaty then do the laws apply to first nations people So I consider that to be a really separate argument in the sense that it's sensible, it's passionately held, and it has some historic strengths. I think it's doomed to fail in our current legal system. It's not to say that we don't need treaty or that we don't need to recognise sovereignty in that way. But in terms of actually uh, running a sovsit type argument based on sovereignty that the laws don't apply to me because sovereignty wasn't ceded, is doomed to fail. That's not to say that you still shouldn't take legal action that is has very limited chances of success because it can have a whole other political socio-consequence of highlighting and, and the like. But, um, and, you know, it's a radical flank of the voice movement, if you like. So legally, I think it's doomed, but it's certainly an argument that needs to be respected. And when it was put to me, which it was in court as a magistrate, I took a very different approach to the standard sovereign citizen argument, and that is treating people with uh, respect to their views, which have a lot of historic and obviously deeply held spiritual and political perspective. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. What about you, Amy? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I would tend to agree that I think that the sovereign sort of movement from an Indigenous perspective has a lot more weight and is a lot of a, more of a stronger argument, I would say, than the sovereign citizen movement more generally. I think that if there was to be any sort of development and progression in this area, it would definitely be in relation to Indigenous peoples and not not otherwise. I don't think that, um, yeah, that there would be much, no, no real fruitful yeah, gain from doing it otherwise. But, um, yeah, I think that the Indigenous movement has a lot more strength to that argument, yeah. Mm. Do you think that there is potential or a way that we can move forward in the future to be able to incorporate Indigenous law, LAW, into colonial law? Or is it, is, is it possible to have that integration and that intersection? Oh, look, it certainly is. And uh, around the world, there are some terrific examples of, of where that occurs. Maori law in New Zealand, First Nations, people in the in the Americas, those uh, in particular, some of the developments for Inuit people in Alaska. There are some great models for incorporation. And we have some limited models within Australia now. I participated for more than 10 years in circle sentencing, which involved elders. And apart from the evaluated studies that show it has a great outcome for the participants, it was one of the most profound learning experiences of my life. So there's movement, there's room for movement of incorporation of uh, First Nations law into Western law or colonial law um, and there's been a lot of studies and suggestions as to how that can be increased and it should be and of course in the end that's what the voice is. It is incorporating Aboriginal voice into the parliamentary process on a consultative and advisory basis but it's better to have a seat at the table than no seat at all and so I see I see the voice as being part of that progression towards much more involvement of Aboriginal LAW in the in the whole system. 
and to some extent it is a sovereign citizen argument because it is sovereignty that forms the basis of this claim to have involvement. But the other thing that forms the basis of the claim is that First Nations people are so horrendously overrepresented in the criminal justice system. I was looking at some statistics for a juvenile detention centre in our area, just here in Grafton, and literally over 90% are First Nations young people. I used to sit in towns in western New South Wales where there was never, the whole time I was sitting there, a white young person before the court. They were only Indigenous people. So the claim to involvement in the criminal law doesn't just come from sovereignty, it also comes from the fact that these are the people who are the most overrepresented throughout the whole system. And I would I, I think, you know, if the first principle of reducing crime is consultation, negotiation, involvement of those people, then that's where it's got to start. And if, if the word sovereignty comes into it, well and good. Amy, do you have anything to say on that as well? I would tend to agree that um, there's definitely room for the incorporation of Indigenous law into into Western sort of um, Australian outlaw. I mean, parliamentary sovereignty is the idea that only one you know legal system can prevail, and that we only abide by one legal system. We can't, we don't recognise Indigenous law. So I think that it's important to incorporate that in. What form that takes and how that will work will probably largely be determinative, as you said, on the refer- the proposed referendum in relation to an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which will be interesting to see the developments around that. I think it will be, it will be progressive. It will be important. I think it's important as well, the communication around it, um, informing people as to the role that they will play, it will play and, and what sort of authoritative or advisory role that it will be and what effect it can actually have. But um, it, that it has the, the potential definitely to um, be quite progressive. Yeah. Mm. And I think as well, I agree 100% with you. And, yeah. and I think as well, you know, for people with within the sovereign citizenship movement who aren't indigenous is important to acknowledge that you know aboriginal and first nations people are overrepresented and over incarcerated in our legal system which brings me to my last question for both of you if you are wanting to be part of the sovereign citizenship movement what advice do you have I suppose I'd rather answer that with a with a short story, which is um, when I was sitting in Grafton Court, I had a fellow come before me who started arguing about a traffic matter on some common law principles, Magna Carta, sovereign citizenship type arguments. He's at that good end of the spectrum where people were challenging the law with some unique arguments, but they were misguided. And I fortunately had just been preparing an education paper on it for other magistrates. And so I gave him all this material saying basically what he was spouting was wrong and here's why. And he asked for an adjournment, took it off and read the stuff and came back a week later saying, you're right, I can't drive without my rego and I'm going to pay it. And, uh, you know, sorry for wasting your time. Let's let's get on with our lives. But he then uh, went and formed something which uh, is called the Freeman Delusion website, which is the leading 
Australian and probably worldwide website on the free man delusion. In other words, challenging sovereign citizenship. And it's a collection of articles and his own writings, but also expert reports and references to court cases around the world showing that these arguments are wrong. Now, the reason I tell that story is because people are capable of change and people who are spouting this material are neither necessarily right-wing, necessarily ill-educated or necessarily misguided in the sense that they're deliberately taking on stuff that they know is wrong. And by entering into honest conversations with them, I think you can change minds. So my best advice to people who are wanting, who are delving into this stuff is to treat them with respect and, and accepting that people can change and get out of the rabbit hole that they're climbing down. Some people are just too far gone. But generally speaking, I think calm and sensible conversation uh, can do an enormous amount. And I think there's two real arguments to have with them, two real things to point out. The first is that whatever their beliefs, it's actually irrelevant when you get to court because not one of these sovereign citizen arguments has ever got up in any way in any court in Australia or around the world. The whole contract issue, the straw man delusion, the no harm, the traveller, none of that has ever got up. So I suppose in some ways where I start with these people is, well, show me where it's worked. Show me a practical application where a court has ever accepted it. Because if it's doomed to fail, why follow? The second thing is I think it's really worth pointing out to people the roots of this movement. I don't see a lot of talk about First Nations rights or disadvantaged people or diversity on these websites. In fact, they still have their roots in the right wing. They still have their roots in the same place that they did in America, in the anti-Semitic, in the racist, in the homophobic. That's their base. And when people, sensible people, start delving into this, uh, I think it's worth pointing out as the second point, first point being it's hopeless when you get to court, but the second point is, do, do you really want to go down this path? Do you really want to link hands with these people? And I think that's quite a powerful argument as well. Mm, I agree. Amy? I guess I would just sort of generally say to inform yourself. I mean, I think that that's the most important thing that anyone can do, anyone who's subject to the law can do. I mean, and I think that when you do inform yourself of perhaps the the principles underpinning this argument and this um, ideology, but also inform yourself of the law and the way that it attempts to create just outcomes and and to promote the resolution of disputes that it is probably a much better way of doing things really like realistically that there's our law is developed over a long time and that yes there's room for for improvement always there's always room for reform but there's a respectful and an appropriate way to do it and that perhaps this is this is not the way to do it i agree Thank you both so much for being with us here today. What a fantastic conversation. And and thank you for giving us an insight into both of your respective law worlds and experiences. Thank you. Thanks, River. Pleasure. Thanks, River. We would like to acknowledge the Widjibal Wyabal people of Bundjalung country as the traditional owners of this land. 
we would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. <laughs>